0: Welcome to this edition of Rail Group On Air, the podcast presented by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Ventuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. We have the Commuter Rail Coalition back in our continuing series, facilitated by Kellyanne Gallagher. The Commuter Rail Coalition has put out a uh, rather extensive position paper that uh, we actually will be covering in detail in the, in the January issue uh, about many issues affecting uh, uh, commuter rail in the United States. We are going to focus on specifically on access capacity and public necessity. Our guests here are Jim Derwinski, who is the CEO and Executive Director of METRA and the Commuter Rail Coalition Chair. John Klein, uh, who is uh, of Klein Strategic Consulting, and he is the uh, Director uh, on the Government Affairs side for CRC. Uh, Chuck Spitulnik, uh, uh, he's the counsel for CRC, and he is with Kaplan, Kirsch, and Rockwell. And of course, uh, Kellyanne, so welcome everybody. Let's, uh, as as Chris Cuomo likes to say on CNN, let's get into it, Jim and Chuck. What do we mean by access, capacity, and uh, public necessity? I'd like you to define these concepts and discuss how they impact commuter railroad operations and generally service to riders and communities.
1: Bill, I'll I'll start with capacity. I might just pass it to Chuck then, but I think capacity is such an interesting topic right now. Um, any given roadway, you have the ability to maybe understand, if we build it this wide, I can have so many cars during this density, running at the speed limit. Railroads are so so different than that, but much easier to control. Uh, on a railroad, we know exactly what kind of cars are going to be there, that we know when they're going to be there, and we know they can't change lanes unless we put in these things called crossovers. So any given line segment anywhere in the country, be it a single track from A to B, or be it two or three or four tracks um, between any two given points has basically some amount of capacity in it. And that capacity sometimes is obviously controlled by the crossovers. Sometimes it's controlled also by, like in the roadway, the intersections where two railroads cross. We have no defined working way that I'm aware of in this country to define the capacity. And why is that important? Well, that's important because every time – A tenant wants to jump on the owners track there's a conversation that says well you're going to impact my capacity to operate my service and that's understandable Um, but then what doesn't happen is getting to the point where we can understand what improvements to the railroad what time during the day or period of time during the week that there is excess capacity and in the commuter rail industry we've been growing we've been growing in a, in a lot of ways at a, at a really astonishing rate since the beginning of, of um, when Amtrak was formed in 1970 we've grown to 30 publicly funded commuter railroads and we're obviously operating in a lot of cases on the National Railway Network sometimes owned by the commuters and sometimes owned by the freights and when commuters are trying to, to do what they're really assigned to do which is you know the growth the expansion, the reduction of emissions and congestion in urban environments, uh, we're, we're met to face with we can't come onto those tracks. It's not a price point thing. It's about capacity. So one of the things we've been really kind of throwing around and, and talking about is trying to have a way to define collectively freights, Amtrak, commuters, short lines, what capacity looks like. And, and I think that's really, if I can, that that's really what we're looking at when it comes to um, this conversation about capacity. How many more trains can fit in any certain line segment during a given period of time with either the current infrastructure or what infrastructure would be put in place to increase that capacity?
2: In terms of access, Bill, um, there, there's uh, – there... Completely completely different universes where we three universes where we have to talk about access Um, When we're talking about freight railroads sharing access to their right-of-way That's something that's fully regulated already by the surface transportation board and the commuter railroads really don't have a don't have anything really to say about that because it's fully regulated at this point but but when we think about passenger access we have to go back to the early to the late 60s early 70s think about what happened in the formation of Amtrak, why Amtrak was formed in the first place. And there was this grand bargain that was entered into between, uh, between passenger interests and the freight railroads to relieve freight railroads of their obligation to provide intercity passenger service. And in exchange for that, Amtrak was created and was given some very beneficial and very strong rights to be able to get access to the freight railroads to relieve them up so that the freight railroads didn't any longer have to provide the inner city passenger service. And, um, and they were also given the opportunity not just to have access, but to have access at very favorable rates. The incremental cost standard that uh, Amtrak uses to get to pay or to, to compensate railroads, freight railroads or other hosts for the use of their lines is something that was specifically part of the bargain because the railroads were so willing to get out of the obligation that they had. Um, unfortunately, commuter railroads were not part of that, even though over the over the course of the year since 1970, commuter railroads, as Jim was just saying, have grown and exploded. There's not been a similar kind of legislative enactment that gave commuter railroads the same kind of rights, even with the 3R Act and the 4R Act and NERSA, the statutes that address the commuter operations on the Northeast Corridor, there wasn't the same kind of Grant of rights and compensation, um, co- beneficial compensation arrangements for the commuter railroads, and the the issue now is how do commuter railroads, which are taxpayer funded, which are which are designed to implement the public policy of improving the environmental um, impacts of of commuters and making it possible to expand job centers in the major metropolitan areas, how do those commuter how do those commuter railroads Get access to the freight lines or to Amtrak lines that may be existing in those metropolitan areas, a, on a basis that's fair and equitable. They don't have to pay unreasonable amounts either for capacity enhancements at the whim of the freight railroad, or uh, pay unreasonable amounts for compensation the general for the general use and operation and dispatching costs on the railroads' lines. So it's a it's an issue that the commuter railroads have been struggling with for many years to try to resolve.
0: Just to uh, add some context to this, I just wanted to read something from the position paper. The Commuter Rail Coalition seeks to have Congress acknowledge the common purposes shared by Amtrak and commuter railroads and direct the Surface Transportation Board uh, as provided under Section 12 of the uh, Reauthorization Act to investigate the terms for existing agreements and the compensation received by Amtrak for the use of their facilities including rail lines and services. And uh, you note here that uh, in dispute are numerous issues, including fees charged by Amtrak, on-time performance calculations, um, Amtrak penalty and incentive payments, liability for events that result in damage to infrastructure. These negotiations nearly always involve nationally or regionally significant railroad issues and thus warrant an examination by the board. Uh, Further, Uh, Amtrak has in the past filed applications requesting that the board institute proceedings to establish reasonable terms and compensation for Amtrak's use of facilities and services of various host railroads. And what you're basically asking here is that the STB should consider playing a similar role for commuter rail agencies encountering similar circumstances when uh, negotiating directly uh, with Amtrak, uh, you say here the commuter rail executives have expressed that cost calculations presented by Amtrak lacked sufficient support and did not adhere to industry-accepted accounting standards. That's a lot there. Uh, who would like to uh, address that directly?
1: I'll take that, Bill, and I'll at least start off with that and look to my colleagues to add to it. In 2006 and 2016, the GAO um, did a uh, report on Amtrak, uh, looking at the transparency of their cost accounting standards and both times recommended that an overhaul basically be done to this date um, they've modified certain things, but they nowhere near meet the standard certainly that I in Chicago have to meet with transparency with regard to my budgets. Um, there seem to be in this in this different world where i 'll just say it's it's very unclear what you're paying for as a a tenant or as a user of an Amtrak system, such as a state-supported service. Uh, Testified in front of Congress to that. And and once again, both GAO reports specifically call on Amtrak to look and change their accounting standards.
2: The the text that you you read also raised um, two separate issues. And one is the way Amtrak charges commuter railroads for use of Amtrak's facilities. Which is an issue because you then have two taxpayer funded railroads um, where one has leverage over the other because the commuter railroads don't have. I mean, in the Northeast Corridor, they have some statutory rights to get access to Amtrak and they have the right to go to the STB to get the STB to establish compensation um, for the use of those facilities. Um, but it's not, there's not an equitable statutory arrangement um, that really very clearly sets forth how. Outside of the Northeast Corridor, how the STB is besetting terms and conditions for use of Amtrak's facilities. And then there's the issue that I talked about before, which is the commuter's access to the freights. And there's no start of a of of an arrangement or a, a philosophy or a standard for compensation for commuter railroads access to the freight lines. So Amtrak has Amtrak and the commuters in the Northeast Corridor have an allocated cost methodology that's been established under PREA, but but that methodology doesn't work anywhere outside the Northeast Corridor. So the, in the conversation that Jim was, was just having, um, where the folks in Chicago want to use some Amtrak facilities, Amtrak has the ability to start wherever it wants to in terms of the compensation that it assesses from the commuters, just as the freight railroads do.
0: So there's really no uh, standard or, or formula that that can be perhaps with, with some adjustments uh universally applied uh across the board, regardless of whether whether it's a commuter railroad operating in Boston or or California or Chicago or or a new start uh wherever. And that's what you're looking for, some sort of Man. a standard?
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing in the current statute that sets that standard for commuter railroads outside the Northeast Corridor that are not operating on track, you know, outside the Northeast Corridor. Um, and that is exactly what the commuter railroads are looking for, is some kind of a fair fair basis for compensation to the freights for the use, of, or impact for the use of their lines.
0: And this has been talked about for, well, I've been around for almost 30 years, and it's, uh, and it's probably been talked about long before I came around, uh, probably going back to, as uh, you folks mentioned, all the way back to about 1970 or so when the, when the freight railroads uh, really started to turn, turn their commuter rail operations over to uh, local or state agencies uh, and have them funded uh, in that manner.
2: Uh, it, it has been, and it really came into high relief. Um, with the the renaissance of commuter railroads there were of course a bunch of legacy systems before the late 80s and early 90s uh, that had existing arrangements and that were continuing to run uh, passenger service that they maybe the public agencies had taken over from the freights but with the renaissance of commuter rail in the late 80s and early 90s with the beginning of tri-rail in south florida and metrolink in uh, metrolink in southern california and the the San Diego County and Seattle and other new services like that that, that popped up in that period, it was um, anybody's guess uh, how, how they were to compensate the freight railroads either for acquisition of their right-of-way or use of their facilities if, if they were just going to be leasing or having access to it.
0: Uh, John Klein, I have a question for you. Uh, in, uh, today is uh, December 9th uh in a little over a month we we're going we're to have a a new a new administration new presidential administration in place and a lot of uh uh a lot of uh new people uh in in the in the, in the government in the legislative pipeline uh we don't know at this point who is going to be in, in control of of the senate uh uh it all depends upon one state georgia what is your outlook what is your feel now for how how things may go uh, in, in the Biden administration?
3: Yeah, certainly, I, I think uh, hopeful is, is a good term. Um, all the signals point to the fact that um, infrastructure, and particularly transportation issues, are likely going to be dealt with early in the, in the uh, new Biden administration. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those issues uh, that I think there still is the hope for bipartisan cooperation. And if you're, if you're a new president with kind of the modern day pressures now that, that you have this 100 day clock ticking on you that you're, you're supposed to show lots of progress and, and success in the first 100 days of your administration, uh, start to look to things like um, infrastructure measures as a way to accomplish that. And so as I, I, it, best I can gather from the Biden transition people, that really is their focus, that they understand that one of the early things right out of the gate is going to be um, infrastructure and the reauthorization of the FAST Act. So um, that certainly presents an opportunity uh, for uh, for ourselves, as well as many others, to pursue the policy changes that we're, we're talking about here and that we've been advocating for in the recent past um, and you know it, it comes at a time I think that's worth mentioning where things are changing rapidly and certainly in our world it's not the only place where we get a lot of change uh, we, we've of course seen the technological changes with the introduction of uh, positive train control and and I think the book is still yet to be written about what exactly that will yield for operating practices and and changing the way we do business uh, much in the same way that the next gen air traffic control system is going to change the aviation system and and capacity issues um, and of course they are also wrestling with the fact that you have uh uh drones and and other autonomous flying vehicles that want to enter the airspace uh otherwise control the airspace and how do the how do you deal with that how do you provide access for that uh so it seems like you know, everybody is facing this, and it, it really puts in very stark colors uh, the fact that we don't have a structure for dealing with these changes, the the natural growth that we've seen over the last 30 years in commuter rail systems across the country, and and who knows what's going to happen now as a result of the pandemic. I would argue that we're probably going to continue to see even more growth for people living in in the outer areas of the cities, uh, and necessitating uh, even more uh, service from the likes of commuter rail agencies. Uh, so, you know, we we need to get Congress to focus on these changes. Uh, Aid understand the, the the shortcomings of the current structure that we operate under, and we and we have a lot of data to support that. Uh, but then, you know, looking forward where do we want to go what are we to, and what are these technological advancements going to yield for us
0: when we started uh this series back in um may uh or, or thereabouts uh, you know the, the pandemic was in its early stages and we were just starting to feel the effects of it uh, and we didn't see as a nation uh, really as a world we didn't we didn't see a, a way out of it but now we see a light at the end of the tunnel. So uh, it, it, was, it would seem to me that uh, uh, if we keep focused on these issues, now that we see a way out of the pandemic and we see a recovery, we see ridership starting to come back, and we see how we, uh, as agencies, we, we can make adjustments to our operations and take advantage of some of this technology that also is evolving. Uh, positive train control. PTC is going to evolve. It's evolving toward the, the next generation 2.0. Uh, a lot of opportunities, technological advances that can help capacity that, that can help, uh, interface between freight trains and passenger trains. Uh, uh, as much as this is a tough time, would you say that, uh, uh, this, there's, there's a lot of opportunity here we just have to know what to do with it.
3: I would agree with that. Um, I think that, uh, uh, the opportunity is there as, as Congress uh, begins, and, and policymakers in the Biden administration too are going to really look at these changes that we're heading toward demographic changes, the results of uh, travel patterns from the pandemic, and just you know uh, technological developments in uh, that are moving very quickly. Um, so, uh, so I think. Um, It's uh, it's an opportunity. It's it's not an easy solution. You know, we we talk about um, you know we in the past we've we've seen uh, efforts to bring in a third party arbitration uh, role to uh, to navigate and help uh, try to come to resolution between the parties on these access issues. Uh, That has not been realized. That's a that's a potential option that still lays out there. Uh, You have the STB, which which plays a similar role and could play a role. Uh, you also have the FRA that could play a role. Um, I you know, personally think it's really not up their alley uh, to, to get into these issues. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, they do deal with uh, issues and, and you know, it's the sort of thing that they could uh, resolve in a hearing examiner type, uh, type structure. But um, I, I think there's a number of these options out there, all of them have their pros and cons. And, uh, you know, it, it necessitates really a, a, good, a good policy discussion with members of Congress and with the administration.
0: I wanted to touch upon uh, the, uh, the Federal Railroad Administration. You know, uh, my, uh, my opinion, and I think a lot of people in our industry would, would agree, is that uh, uh, what I would call a, a very troubled... Presidential administration, I would say that the FRA was was one of the few bright spots. Uh, the, the current administrator, Ron Vittori, of course, is a railroader of many decades standing. Uh, he he got a lot of things done and. The general consensus that I've gotten from talking to people in the industry is that he set the framework now. He's leaving an organization that is much better suited to dealing with, uh, with, with not only with safety, but also with technology. Granted, the FRA is not a legislative body. Part of its mission is carrying out legislation. The FRA is much more focused on R&D. Obviously, we'll need some continuity at the FRA, do you see that in
1: place? With respect to the one thing I think Ron's done, and that really comes from his years and years and years of operational experience, he knows as the administrator, as the head of the organization, the legacy that he leaves behind is really in the core of the people that will be there for the next administration. And and, uh, I know for a fact that he's taken that very seriously, that uh, the people at the higher end, uh, higher up in the FRA Uh, With inside the administration, there um, they're really the ones that will bring continuity to the next administrator.
0: I had uh, just a general question about the Surface Transportation Board. Now it is fully uh, staffed now in terms of the the uh, the members. There are five now. It it appears that the that the STB is now equipped to move forward with uh, some things, uh, some pieces of legislation or rulemakings, uh, what have you, that that have been. Kind of sitting on, you know, either sitting on the back burner and haven't really been been dealt with. What, what's the general feeling? Uh, do you think the STB is is in a better position to deal with uh, these these issues? Uh, I think that
2: first of all, we have to um, give STB credit for having been able to manage um, and be as effective and productive as it's been over the last several years without without a full complement of of board members and they really um, they've really done a good job trying to keep up with the red pace of the many issues that have been brought to them Um, i think that there's no doubt but that uh with the new administration coming and the new sets of issues that are likely to be presented that it will be a good thing that they have all five members and that they will have a full complement of staff to go along with those five members because they are Um, There are a lot of things that people have kind of been waiting um, to bring to them until they had a full A full complement of members and I think that we're going to see some of those issues starting to come and we're already starting to see You know the introduction of some new railroad merger proceedings and things that have been very quiet for a while Um, I think that from my perspective um, the STB has for a while had a mediation role in the in the in addressing issues between commuter railroads and the freights. And as John suggested, that's a role that they've been willing to step up to, but not many have taken advantage of. And so it hasn't been as effective as in um, addressing issues that continue to plague the commuter railroads. And I think that given the full complement of members and given the excellent staff, well-experienced staff that they have over there, I think it's um i think it would be a logical place to take this because they do understand um they have a very keen understanding of the capacity issues of what it means to study capacity and what it means to figure out what's a reasonable rate for one railroad to charge another entity for use of and access to its facilities so i think they would be from my perspective and this is just you know chuck spatolnik talking not on behalf of any of the good folks whom I have the privilege of representing, um, this is it's my view that the STB would be um, a perfect place to take this issue of access of and compensation.
1: I certainly agree with Chuck's position on they would be the perfect place to take it. I mean, when you look amongst the alternatives to this, it's uh, staring each other in the face or using the U.S. court system, um, and that's really not the place it belongs, trust me, I know. So what I I would say, you know, the big thing to your question, Bill, about what do I think about it, I really think that I hope in the the, uh, new administration that Congress has the ability and the time to really start listening to some of this, because obviously this is going to take a congressional change to give the authority deeper to the STB where we feel it belongs. Right now, commuter has very little places to adjudicate any of its disputes.
3: Bill, I, I guess I would just I would just add, uh, you know, echo Jim's point is that, uh, and also what Chuck was pointing out too, that this uh, the STB would seem to be the logical place, uh, within, and there currently does not exist that authority uh, to to grab this issue, um, and nor is the STB seeking it out. I mean, you know, there's there's some ways that you can get authority. It's either legislatively or you can convince executive uh, branch agency to kind of expand on their own, their, their, uh, their viewpoint on what they want to do. You know, certainly my impression is the STB is not seeking this out at all. Um, And the only way that it is going to occur uh, having the STB uh, with this uh, authority is with a legislative solution. I
0: wanted to ask, uh, uh, or get some perspective on the, how shall we say the, uh, perspective at the, at the big railroads at the class one railroads, there has been a very gradual uh, change in leadership. Uh, we see some younger people coming in. We see people other, uh, other than men in, in positions of, uh, responsibility. Uh, I think the most prominent one is, uh, Katie Farmer, who will be who will become on January first the first woman CEO uh, of a Class One railroad, BNSF, and you know as as you get uh, uh, pe- people in in positions of leadership at a Class One railroad who are markedly different than than those who have preceded them in some instances, and also you seem to have we seem to have a focus on uh, more on on sustainability. Part of sustainability also means providing the means for uh, not only getting trucks off the road, okay, but getting motorists off the road. And that means onto commuter trains or Amtrak trains. I tend to be an optimist. I see the class one railroads becoming more and more amenable to hosting passenger services un, under the right circumstances and not not being so rigid. Uh, some railroads will will react more positively than others. Uh, what what's your perspective and of course we have here Jim Jim you deal with UP you deal with BNSF. Do I have a right to be optimistic?
1: You have a right to be optimistic certainly and I and I think some of the things that really move the optimism are are not just a direct moving a train in Chicago or anywhere in the country. But it's that eventual relationship with that commu- the commuter railroad, its governmental you know authority inside its region, and the partnership eventually with the federal side that eventually ties to the bigger railroads, the class ones. Here in Chicago, we operate with 14 railroads. And so we see it up and down the gamut, everything from absolutely what can we do to help you to, no and um (laughs) typically you know once again when we get to the point of of change of leadership i always try to go in there with the with the open thing like how can i help you so you can help me and right now that's that's the best we have is to be able to try to work together you know we work very very closely with union pacific we're we're in the midst of a little dispute right now um and we work very great with um with the bnsf looking forward uh working with uh, Katie Farmer um, in the future. Really, the BNSF has been, it's been incredible to work with here in Chicago and, and the, the amount of focus that they put toward that commuter product. They know directly that even though it says Metro side of the train, that people are up and down that line are very well aware that the BNSF is actually the one pulling the levers, making this happen. And, and so there's accolades that go much beyond um having having your name on the train when, when it comes to um the far reaches of this. I mean, certainly, um, this is just one state. The BNSFs also working in Minnesota, Seattle, in california. um union pacific, um they've they've changed what their um, you know direction is. they kind of want to get out of the commuter service right now, but they want to remain a good partner with all their commuter partners throughout the country. And and that's we have a unique situation here where the, the Union Pacific is actually operating those metric trains. So as we navigate through that, I'll be interested to see how how if and any of the change in um, elected officials in this administration, in Washington potentially affects or, or influences potentially anything here in Chicago with regard to our partners.
3: You know, I think the proof will be in the pudding. Uh, whether there's a change of uh, of strategy. Um, along the lines of what you described um, so far in Washington, the positions that are maintained would not indicate that there's a a corporate shift. Um, Certainly, sustainability has become a a major issue for for all of corporate America, and everybody, I think, wants to uh, achieve various goals, particularly in in their operations, uh, to to meet those, uh, those efforts. But um, you know, the, the hope and desire that the class ones would uh, see a reduction in, in traffic as a result of increasing uh, commuter rail services as a way of meeting their sustainability goals. I don't, I haven't seen that yet. Um, and, you know, hopefully maybe that becomes an issue that, that they begin to realize that. But I think uh, right now uh, uh, that, that has not presented itself.
2: And I think I think that one issue that's um, that's always kind of the elephant in the room, not not kind of, but is always the elephant in the room when a commuter railroad is having a conversation about about a freight railroad about sharing a corridor or sharing tracks um, is liability. And I think, as John pointed out, we have an administration now that's be um, encouraging the rail industry to think creatively about how to solve uh, some of the issues that are facing. Um, facing the passenger railroads, and um, it's an issue that we're going to have to talk about. And uh, the the freight railroads legitimately have a concern about the introduction of passengers on their lines that have been used exclusively for freight purposes. And the passenger railroads, on the other side, have a have a legitimate interest in making sure that the mere fact of introduction of passenger service to the freight line doesn't mean that they have to take on all the responsibility for anything that happens on the line if there happens to be a passenger train nearby and i think that one of the things that that we're hopeful about is that the current administration which has this um focus the new administration i'm sorry that has this focus on improving uh, access to passenger rail passenger service um, will help the railroads, commuter and freight, to find a way to work their way through that maze and get to a solution that will um, that will be helpful. Certainly, the liability cap that exists in the statute is one was a huge major step forward uh, many years ago, and we need to continue thinking creatively about how to. Um, to bring that issue to the table and bring the bring the parties to the table, all the parties to the table, um, in a way that will um, will allow us to work walk through that maze and get to a good place at the end.
0: And it's going to take funding. The funding for anything from advancing the technology that's available to us now, the positive train control, advancing that to improve the safety of train separation between freight and passenger. Mm-hmm. To building new lines in, in parallel if the provided the real estate is there, uh, so it's, it's probably it's, it's a combination of things that uh, that have to come together.
2: I, I think you're right, Bill, and I think that the current, the current uh, project that the Commonwealth of Virginia is engaged in current with CSX, um, uh, I think is a really good example of very creative thinking about how to do exactly what you're talking about, finding ways to use existing corridors, um, in a way that's going to um, enhance the fluidity of both the freight operations and enhance the frequency of uh, the passenger service that's being able to be provided on the line, both inner city and commuter.
1: As taxpayers, your dollars are used for this public service in, in many of these, these cities. And, you know, the, the freights and, and many others, I mean, sewer, water, police, I'm not putting this up exactly in the exact same category as police and fire, but the fact of the matter is when people pay tax dollars for any reason, be it property tax, sales tax, when they pay tax dollars, they want their legislator to spend that dollars responsibly. These legislators have responsibly said, we are gonna fund public transportation. And in the case of commuter railroads, this becomes as identified just by the language a public necessity because they're using taxpayer dollars for it. They can't use taxpayer dollars just because they want to, because it's a great thing to do. It always has to be for public benefit. This is not just about what commuters want. It's about representing those public dollars in the proper way we're supposed to.
4: And I think um, that goes to all of the points in our policy paper, which you you touched on earlier, Bill. mm -hmm. Uh, I think repeatedly, if you look at look point by point, each one of them is going to drive home um, that we need the opportunity to be better stewards of the public money that we are allocated, whether it's federal or local, um, and we can look at liability insurance and how how that money is being spent to meet that mandate. We can look at uh, the, the money that's been spent already on the unfunded mandate of PTC and what ancillary benefits come from that? Um, and I can go on, but you know, we we have we have a duty to perform. Uh, we're given a certain amount of money, but we can probably make that money go further with some adjustments if if we can get um, Congress to to look at what we're asking for.
2: Yeah, I just want to note that with the point that Jim made is essential, um, and it becomes an essential component of the legislative package that. Uh, that John was talking about, which is to say, to the extent that the that the federal legislation is going to give a mandate to some agency um, to make a determination about access by commuter railroads, there has to be a redefinition of the public convenience and necessity in a way that makes it explicitly clear um, that the interests that Jim articulated that are are have been presented by state lo- legislatures or local governments to fund these should be a key component of the public convenience necessity that the STB or whoever the decision maker is, is considering um, when they're making decisions about this.
0: Well, I would like to thank everyone for joining us uh, today. Kelly Ann, thank you for uh, facilitating this uh, ongoing series with the Commuter Rail Coalition. Jim Derwinski, John Klein, uh, Chuck Spitulnik, uh, uh, all of you. We wish you uh, wish you the best. We wish you good health. Uh, this is just before the holiday, so happy holidays. And look to the January issue uh, for uh, some more comprehensive information on what the Commuter Rail Coalition is doing. Thanks very much and uh, have a safe day.